The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Welcome. Tonight, it's going to be a mess of um, mushrooms that I whipped up. These are like so intense, I don't think I can finish them all. These are these, they're just amazing mushrooms. And also a little bit of shellfish. I realize this is not quite kosher, but I do love shrimp. I realize it's not as good as shrimp on the Mediterranean. But it is good. Tonight, what I'm going to be looking at is the, um, basic principles of faith by which dominion of God and of God's people in the earth is established. Because it's been striking me more and more lately that I just look at the arguments that we have over any number of different things, which are valid arguments. That there really is only one thing that truly does divide God's people. And that is the Word of God. We, we tend to think of it in terms of doctrines, as if, um, you know, we disagree on the doctrine of God or the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of man or something like that, doctrine of predestination or free will. But in reality, if you look at the church now from the perspective of 2,000 years and of another 4,000 years before that, or really all the way back to the beginning, you can see that... that um, that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, by communicating his word to his people, has preserved a people for himself. And the thing that in the end divides his people from the word world is his word. His word is what sifts through the people of the earth and the people and, and those who he puts it in his heart. They're the ones who become his people, which is thy word have I hid in my heart. So, let's take a look at this. Basic principles of the faith by which dominion, that is the rule of God in the earth, is established through his people. There's no other standard. God's people are those who have been defined by God's word down through the ages. They are created and sustained by the Holy Spirit speaking through the word, correcting errors that at any given time will plague the ministry and peace of Christ's church, and yet somehow... You come back 100, 200, 300, 500 years later, and you find that God has brought his people on their next step. And this, this goes all the way back. When you read through the Old Testament, I don't want to be too negative here, but it almost sounds like one failure after another. But every time you get dipped back into the flow of what God's doing in history, his people are another step further. And, and I always used to wonder, how did that happen? What did he do? How, how did it go from... Well, anyway... Though a tip of the hat is often given to the work of the Holy Spirit and the sufficiency and the efficacy of scriptures in our, in our doctrinal statements, when the question of church government arises, there is the distinct impression that it has this top-down power, that as a government of the church has this top-down power of able bishops and able elders and, and leaders who have through ecclesiastical force to maintain the purity of the faith the protection of the faithful, the, the sifting of the true from the false, the discipline of the church, and, and they get all the credit for, for having brought us another step closer of, of doing that work of, of uh, leading the church. Now, I find this idea is as absurd as it is to give the Pharaohs credit for the rise and the fall of the Nile, even though for three millennia they proved that they were the reason, that they were the cause 
of the Nile going up and down because each spring they would go out and perform their Nile Arise ritual. And then the Nile would, would come up. And a month or two later, they would come down just about the time that everybody thought the Nile was going to wash them all away. They'd come out and perform their Nile Fall ritual. And amazingly, the river would go down, the plains would be fertile, and life could go on again. Thank God for the pharaohs. They must be God's tools, God's instrument. Where would we be without their intervention? So too, God's word continues to sift out his people and establish them, even though the elders want us to believe that it's their rituals of control, their labors as mere judges who peep and mutter as they coerce the congregation. They are the source of the advance of the church. They have battled error. They have battled heretics. That's why there's purity in the church and the church continues to grow. Now, it's God's contention that his word continues to work more fully when we are free of those elders to disciple the congregation by making the truth of God's word clear. Let me say that again, because it didn't come through clear to me. The scriptures teach, it's God's contention, that his word continues to work more fully if we free those elders to disciple the congregation by making the truth of God's word clear and applying it to their lives through prayer, teaching, example, and worship. What the Apostle summarizes is the ministry of word and prayer and leave to the Holy Spirit to establish and remove the dross in the church over time. We don't need to go out and have our Nile church rise, church fall rituals in order to be sure that the purity of the church is maintained. What is needed is not a repeating of these doctrines here. They're there in all the other creeds, such as the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, and so forth. But rather, what we need is an operational significance of what it means to be confident in our proceedings that God's word is final. It needs no other source or authority or proof that no one can understand God's word apart from the Holy Spirit speaking through it and opening their eyes, mind, and heart, that it is, to com that it is complete and unique and finished from Genesis to Revelation. Nothing is to be added to it or taken from it. That the foundational doctrines are found in every verse of Scripture whose meaning is self-consistent, such as the doctrines of Scripture, the Trinity of creation, the fall, man, God, redemption, the law of grace, providence, that all Scripture proclaims these doctrines fully in every Scripture, and they proclaim through them Jesus Christ, his work and his plan for all time, because Jesus is God, the Son, slain before the foundation of the world, of which he is its creative architect. And he is its, he, and it's his incarnation that is the reason the whole world was created in the first place, so that there could be a place where God could come and become flesh. That this sufficiency of Scripture in no way contradicts the fact that God's revelation to us hasn't ceased. His finished word is the measure of all things. That has ceased. Anyone believes that the Holy Spirit is revealing today or has revealed in his word in any other time. But these are things, these uh, things are a firm conviction, if, if this is true, that God's word is sufficient. It's finished. Whatever God has to say th to us is through it and therefore to our hearts. It doesn't add to it. Then it's the scripture, not the interpretation or decrees of men. It's the scripture that's the final court of appeal for all thoughts, doctrines, philosophies, controversies, freedom, government, and worship. And we can live confidently in the knowledge that it is not our job to sift God's people for him, but rather to make the terms of the sieve, his word, as clear as we can, as clear as God grants gifting and light and confidence then we should be confident that the real sorting out process of God will reveal and establish his people and cull out and eliminate the rest over time. Our job is clarity and ethics. Our job is sound judgment and application. If you are a leader or ruler in the church, then your job is, is leading and guiding and making clear. Your, your ability to rule is based on that ability to be clear, to be simple to cut straight to the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's job is the executive task of sorting the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. That's not your job. Your job is by the wisdom and discernment of God, if you're a leader, if you're a ruler in the church, to be raising people up so they can do this thing. 
So it's the congregation of God that has the wisdom, the Holy Spirit, the discernment, the training. So that as Paul said to the Corinthians who were suing each other, the, the, the least of you is going to be judging angels. Let that person uh, judge your, your disputes with each other. Man, too much of a mouthful. Those are the, um, what do you call them? The mushrooms. They're amazing. And that's what's left of the time. Okay. So much by way of introduction. Let me try to get this formatted right. I've completely lost my place. Now, Scripture, not the interpretation of the creeds of men, is the final court of appeal. If it's our firm conviction that Scripture is final, then it's scripture, not the interpretation of the decrees of men. That's the final court of appeal for all thoughts, doctrines, philosophies, controversies, freedom, government, and worship. Therefore, you can live confidently in the knowledge that it is not the task of an elite leadership in the church to tell you inerrantly what those scriptures teach. It is rather the task of the leaders to make clear what they teach and then to teach the people of the congregation, the discernment and understanding and applying it. So, Scripture will always find God's people. That's the confidence that I have. That's confidence I believe you should have. It is the grid by which, which sifts them out through all mankind throughout all millennia. The elder's job is to faithfully teach it, faithfully contrast it with error, but not erect himself as a court to pass judgment on those who are in error. And by passing judgment, I don't mean evaluation. I mean declaring who is in and who is out. That is the task in, in Matthew 18 that Jesus Christ gives to the congregation. The elders aren't some elite group that take the place of the congregation and then beat the congregation into submission until they agree with their judgments, just in case they don't agree. The elder's job is to faithfully teach it, faithfully contrast it with error, but not erect himself as a court to pass judgment on those who are in error, except to pronounce their error, to warn them of it, and to argue, and perhaps if no other way can be found to convince them. And if the matter is serious enough, the congregation then, in agreement, sends them forth to form their own congregation. I'll get into that a little bit later. Or go out on their own with either our blessing or our dire warning. Division is not a terrible thing. Division is what the church will be doing naturally and normally as it grows. Having stable congregations that don't divide is something that, that, that should be viewed as a tremendous downfall of the church since the time of the apostles. But I'll get into more of that later. We separate in faith that God will in time, through his word, sift the error out along with those who, shaped, who are shaped by it, and in humility, we realize that it might be we who are sifted out. Only the rule of the least of these is sufficient for such discernment. And that's why Jesus said, the least shall be the greatest. Because the greatest will always demand that everyone be a part of their kingdom, their theology, their philosophy, as they define it at that moment, or to hell with them. Which actually is what excommunication is all about. Just elders saying, to hell with you. There really is only one schism. And that is to depart from the conviction that God's word is final, and that whatever doctrine is found there must be believed and obeyed until clearer light springs for the same word. Outside of that, there is no light, but it's the word in which there is no, uh, which is the source of the light. Ecclesiastical courts are not sources of that light, or God would have said so, and made courts an explicit and exclusive part of an elder's job description. Paul wrote quite a bit about elders. He never mentioned anything about a court. Now, some will say, well, what did he do to Hymenaeus and Alexander? Uh, the same thing you could do to them. Curse them. Bind them over to Satan. That's the power that God's given you. Go read Matthew 18. Where two or three of you are gathered together, you can do that sort of thing. 
Now, a great error among churches committed to the full authority of Scripture is that they grant the same authority to their understanding of Scripture. The profoundest commitment to Scripture does not guarantee that any particular doctrine that seems to come from it is true or accurately understood, or if understood, is correctly understood and is therefore correctly applied to practice or to the body of doctrine. Therefore, we do not need to battle those we oppose to the end of bitter division and hatred like we do on Facebook. By the way, if, if you think that, it's, that everybody agrees on everything, just go on to any doctrinal Facebook page and see how they don't agree. But we don't have to go to bitter division, hatred, however we mask it in pious excuses of one sort or another. There's a reality check here. In days, years, perhaps centuries to come, we might be found to be in error as much as our opponent. Our confidence should be that the Word of God is going to sift us all out. Rather, as year succeeds to year, we live by the serene confidence that God's Word will weed through all the competing interpretations, including our own, and sustain the true and leave the rest to wither in the thin soil by the road and rocks, however lovely and healthy their or our first flowering might have seemed. Go check out Matthew 13, 1-23 for where that picture comes from. It is not the task of the church of the elders to erect tribunals to sniff out, you know, the Hosno Society, they sniff out heresy, and then to burn the heretic, literally or figuratively. It is the task of the church to teach the truth and live in such a way that the heretic is convicted from the heart, or being unconvinced, unconvinced departs with our prayers, not our bitter enmity. God can take care of him if he's wrong. Check out 1 Timothy. See how Paul tells Timothy to deal with error, contempt, and sinful opposition. Go take a look at it. Timothy, don't let them despise your youth. Rather, show them a thing or two. You, sh you, you, no, he doesn't. Hold a court, Timothy, and discipline those people who refuse to submit to you. What does he tell Timothy to do? It's, by the way, in the very first chapter. Where separation is necessary... It can be with the full confidence that whether or not our side or the other side is God's servant today, in 100 to 300 years, the world will know who spoke truly for Christ according to the word of God. It is for us to live in the fullness of what we by faith understand and pray for further understanding and grow as God gives us increase. It is by that fruitful growth that God grants increase to his people and weeds their sterile enemies out. Genesis 1, 27 through 28 promises that. Genesis 9, 27. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Genesis 32, 12. Exodus 20, 5 through 6. Deuteronomy 7, 9 and 10. Daniel 2, 44 through 45. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Probably could have thrown in Isaiah 8 in there. These are all scriptures that show that God fruitfully grows his people. So, to start a congregation over a disputed term or doctrine or practice isn't necessarily schismatic, but rather a good and healthy way to remain civil and in prayer, each side for the other, trusting God to sustain his word, his way, however stiff the opposition. And just in terms of a concrete application of this, my own home church, the Montreat Presbyterian Church, did exactly that, including when they came to, to a pull-out of the, uh, I guess, the United Presbyterian Church. I forgot by what name the great liberal denomination calls itself. Uh, they, they voted something like 400 to 9 to withdraw. And guess what? Those nine pulled out and, and formed their own church. Well, God bless them. You know, you know what the Montreat Church did? It, it settled with them. They started out in court. It settled with them saying, hey, you can have the name of the Montreat Presbyterian Church, which it's been called for the last hundred years. Just gave it away will be called Christ, uh, what, what is their name? I still call them the Montreat Church. But they also paid him uh, $300,000 and said, hey, God bless you, go get started, have it your way. The bottom line is, they didn't care about the money. They didn't use good stewardship as an excuse to say, my money. Oh no, I can't deal with these heretics. No, we can't, no. They just said, you know what, God bless you, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth if God's blessing is on you. If not, you'll wither and perish. And they pray for them every, every morning in the worship service. That, that, that church, nine people. That is the example that I, 
I, I see on a broad term basis, and I'll show you why that shouldn't be so unique, even in a church like the Montreal Church. Now, to understand how and why this works, how the scriptures work in this, I want to turn to the upper room worship of the church. In the upper room there, the example of Jesus uh, is given to us, and I call it, it ought to be our uh, regulative principle for worship. And by that, I don't mean we discover the details, such as which hand did he hold the bread and the cup with, uh, and, and so that we can be sure that we can use our right or left hand and do it the way Jesus did it. See, what is set forth instead in the upper room is not a ritual or a set of events or some things to be quoted exactly to be sure the Holy Ghost is in them. It's a way of seeing what is important to God and living with those priorities and making those important for us. So the first thing we understand is that no method of worship in and of itself pleases God or forces his blessing or presence to descend upon us. That, that was the error made by uh, Cain, I believe, who felt like, wait a second, I did a good sacrifice to God. I gave it the first fruits of the land and so forth, whatever it was. It, it, you know, God should have been here. So he kills his brother. There's no method of worship that in and of itself pleases God or forces God to bless us with his presence. God the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth, not impressive technique and form. And things said, just the right way. These are the words of fencing the table. These are the words of institution. You know, Paul, well into the start of the church, says, you know, this is how I say it. He didn't say, say it this way, because if you don't do the incantation right, and if the right person doesn't do the incantation, no, that's not what was going on up there at all. Almost any form of worship that does not incorporate sin can please God, but none require, requires his blessing, even if he blessed them in the past because they did something that way, even if they are otherwise beyond objection. In other words, nothing wrong with how they did it. And no form of worship lacking the spirit and truth from the heart of the worshiper in concordance with his word can be acceptable. Some ways of worshiping, though blessed in the past, will not continue in God's blessing, such as Samuel worshiping in the high places in Israel, or Abraham's willingness to engage in human sacrifice, or in the return to Mosaic temple and purification system. You know, these are things God blessed in the past, but it's like, you know, that's not the pattern for where he wants to go with worship. So to it, it's worth noting that Jesus was not deterred or bothered by the lack of focus in his listeners, whether it was the crying of children during a sermon or the arguing disciples carrying on and not paying attention to him, even though on the night of his betrayal and death, he was confident that the Holy Spirit and his word would penetrate as necessary to accomplish his will in the earth in his father's time and in each heart of the people who are there with him. That really should be our confidence. We don't need to create a whole bunch of artificial, solemnizing worship things, or exciting worship things if you're Pentecostal, or meditative worship things if you're Eastern. The position the people are in may be improved by this or that setup. Whether orderly rows or random movable chairs or no seating at all, even though different seating formats, some are more conducive to different outcomes, none of them guarantee or make godly worship possible. Jesus himself was lying around on the floor for a good bit of that last worship service there in the upper room, and the rest of his disciples were sprawling there with him, one so disorderly as be lying with his head on Jesus' chest and receiving hand signals from Peter in the midst of all the hubbub to ask Jesus a question through the confusion caused by his announcement that he was going to be betrayed and one of them was going to do it. And they're all saying, is it I, is it I, is it I? And they're arguing back and forth. And, and, and uh, uh, Peter tries to get, hey, psst, John, John, hey, who is it? Who is it? Okay, he, he's making hand signals to him, trying to get John to ask him. This is why, I mean, when you read the story, it doesn't tell you all of that. It just says, Jesus says, oh, I'll tell you who it is. It's going to be the guy with whom I dip. So he dips, gives it to Judas, and says, hey, go do your thing. And everybody says, they did not know why he went out. What, are they stupid? No, they weren't paying attention. And you know what? Jesus didn't care. Didn't bother Jesus. <clears throat> See, this is not to show us the best position to be in but rather to show us the utter irrelevance of position in Jesus' estimation of whether in the upper room or throughout his whole ministry, somebody is touched by him. 
See, there was so much lack of focus in the room that they didn't even get who was going to betray him, like I just told you. He told them directly, nor did most of them hear, most of the three or four chapters worth of material he said that only John recorded. I mean, those chapters of John are some of the heaviest chapters in the whole Bible. And it didn't bother Jesus that John would be the only one who paid sufficient attention to them to find it important enough to include them in his gospel. Just, just let that sink in for a while. I can tell you this. If I was Jesus, I'd be saying, shut up out there. You guys pay attention to me. This is important. I'm God for crying out loud. Now, I'm telling you, it's good that I go away because I'm going to be sending a comforter to you and the Holy Spirit who will lead you into... Now, would you pay attention? No. That, that wasn't Jesus' approach at all. If, if I had been in charge, I would say, okay, this is going to be our time of instruction. I want every, by the way, this is how I do it with my own family, which never really worked real well. But everybody has to be quiet. Everybody has to listen. Nobody's allowed to distract each other. The Father is speaking. That's, that's not the way Jesus did it at all. Jesus didn't approach it that way. You see, Jesus was most comfortable with an environment that was relaxed in general and self-focused. I don't mean focused on yourself, but focused by the thing that you think was important to focus on. When there was something of sufficient important to make a person focusing worth his while. Whatever Christians do in their meetings that they think needs everyone's attention, realize God himself wasn't bothered when his friends, the apostles, didn't pay attention and miss things. How many times did he say, oh, how slow of heart. Are, are your eyes opened? Uh, okay, if you have eyes to see, you'll see this. Don't worry, you got it, you guys, because God opened up your eyes. I speak in parables because he closes their eyes. Here was the great communicator, not particularly concerned that he create an artificial environment in which communication could be forced on people, whether there's anything worth communicating or not. So too, Christian worship should not be formed around artificial times of externally imposed, totally undistracted attention, as if this is a value in and of itself to draw his people nearer to him. But rather, as people perceive value in a speaker, they should focus on it. And if what is said is sufficiently important, and if the Holy Spirit is at work in the congregation and in the speaker, everyone will stop what they're doing and listen. Or a bunch of people will and pay attention. And that is how leadership rises naturally to the top. Go check out Job 29. It is a free market of ideas and spiritual values that God has designed for his people in all they do, not merely economics. This is how it works in worship and fellowship. It does not improve the situation to impose an artificial order from the top down, which only confuses the understanding of the forces that are truly at work, and only those forces can lead to, to God's fruitful conclusions and to try and impose them as if God's not sufficient will only lead to bad decisions. The same tenor should mark true worship, that it is only as good as the heart of those involved is able to focus and attend to it, and it is not improved by external rules, rituals, constraints, removing instruments, adding instruments, uh, having solos, having everybody sing together. These, these things are incidental. What's important is that the Holy Spirit of God work in us. That is what should be turning us, not the coercion of, of everybody being forced to do the same thing at the same time. Such an environment of fellowship, worship, and teaching that is not cramped by time constraints promotes a natural resistance to making the strength and success of the church depend on the ability of organizers to organize an elite who are best able to focus the work and ministry of the church, create artificial props to its worship so that everybody can have a good experience. You see, from my perspective, the seeker-friendly churches are no less biblical or unbiblical than your Reformed churches with a regulative principle. Both of them are, and everything in between, they're all obsessed with getting their worship and ritual right. Some may be saying no worship, no, no ritual at all. 
Others may be saying lots of ritual. Others may be... The, the, the point is, each of them in their own way has said, this is the way you do it. This sort of worship, where you're gathered around a meal, intrinsically resists the reduction of faith to ritual, and by design it resists the rise of a priestly elder elite because it doesn't have in it a bunch of things that are easy to control and easy to get for the elder to say, I am the gateway to this. Now, I know you're reformed. And if you're reformed, you know that one of the big issues of the Reformation was the priests are the gateways. They handle the spigots of the grace of God. Let me tell you this. If an elder can bar your access to the table until his judgment deems you worthy, then meet the new door to the sheepfold. The elder is no different functionally from any priest in any Catholic church. This said, nothing can overcome the immature desire of a congregation to be led by those who slap their faces and put a ring in their noses as a sign of submission to their authority in the church. Go check out 1 Corinthians 11.20. Paul says, Would you respect me more if I slapped you in the face? <clears throat> it requires a mature congregation, and it requires elders who understand their task as, as discipling that maturity, not as it administrating whatever it is they do in elders' meetings. One aspect of the upper room and of the early church meeting in Acts is consistent with all old covenant worship from the food offered at the creation to man. <clears throat> at the creation uh, to man, God offered him food in Genesis 1.28. He says you can eat all these, um, you know, the, 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 the fruit and the seed. That's all for you. And, uh, and then the, the two trees in the garden and on. They revolve around food. Meeting with God is not some ritual or lecture led by an expert. This isn't a, certainly is not a ritual. Certainly is not a, well, it is a lecture, I'll give you that. But the cool thing is, you can turn it off whenever you want. You don't have to sit here and watch me eat. In fact, if you had any sense, you'd turn it off, go get yourself some good food, and then come watch me eat. Well, you could eat with me while I eat, and you can say, your shrimp is better than my shrimp. My shrimp is shrimpier. The synagogue was not a biblically ordained form of gathering. Though by the time of Christ, it was a normal and accepted social structure. The synagogue was not the pattern for the first generation church any more than the Greek theater or pagan temple worship was their pattern. They met in a far more free-flowing journey from house to house, breaking bread, less structured by ritual, and more ordered by things going on, very similar to what we find in the upper room. No doubt there are some that were kind of like synagogues, and there are others that were much more like a Pentecostal church. I don't know. But the whole point is, there was a flow there. And for 20 or 25 years into that first generation, we find Paul addressing the order of worship in Corinth. Now, now get that. That's about 20, 25 years after uh, we read in the first chapters of Acts that they went from house to house, and we find in Corinth the same kind of an unstructured worship going on. And and the the disorder in Corinth that, that Paul addressed was not the disorderliness. He, he, he was not saying, you guys got to get your act together. What, put one guy up front, one singer up front at a time. Have, have everybody facing the same way at all times. Be quiet. That's, that's, that's not what he said at all. That first generation, we find Paul addressing the order of worship in Corinth, chapter 14, and it's remarkably similar to what we see in Acts 1 through 5, where Philip's four virgin daughters prophesy, and the people go from house to house, and Agabus prophesies, and they're breaking bread. And once the upper room worship was abandoned, at the passing of the apostles, 40 years later, the church has sought a foundation for its practice. And the best it's been able to do is point to the synagogue. Hey, it's the synagogues. That must be it. And, and the judicial function of elders at the city gate, neither of which had a place in the teaching of Jesus 
or the New Testament. And they weren't assumed by, you know, people say, well, it's assumed by it. Is it? I don't see that assumption made anywhere except by those who want to justify a form of government and a form of worship and a form of order uh, that's entirely alien to what we actually see them doing there. After 70 AD, the early church abandoned everything and went straight to the pagan forms of civil and temple rule, entertainment oriented, to organize their worship patterns around them. Within 400 years, they had adopted the entire Roman government civil and temple vocabulary to organize the many-layered church around divine Greek theater. But it was not so in the New Testament church, though it does remain the pattern to this day, and it's enshrined in all the books of church order. The characteristics of their service of worship were, this, this is the church, gather with everyone else who knows Jesus and eat a meal. In that environment, work through whatever needs working out. Pray, sing, worship, teach, prophesy, rebuke, exhort, encourage, and love everyone there. And if need, and if need be, separate out new congregations. And, and also, I should say, and have the church decide on issues where two can't seem to get along with each other. The room should be filled with comfortable chairs, possibly recliner, cl recliners like Jesus used, or none at all. That can be, and these, these, if there's anything to center, it can be pulled into any sizing group as needed from two or three to a whole group at once to be addressed or sung to by one person or spoken to by one person. I guess that's what addressed means. The very flexibility helps prevent the idea that we are here so one person can turn himself into a one-man band, into the only person we need to listen to. Not even Jesus himself organized by forcing anyone to listen or follow. People listen and follow because they wanted to, as long as they wanted to, because the Holy Spirit was at work in their life or because their eyes had not been opened, so they didn't follow. The upper room, they had to go bury the dead or they had too much wealth or something like that. The upper room was designed organically to emphasize that everyone needs to that everyone needs to be at that point where they find everyone else worth listening to. That's the kind of maturity we're talking about. Not the children who are saying, listen to me, listen to me. They discern the body, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, and all of 1 Corinthians 14. At some point while eating, stop and remember that last night, Jesus breaking the bread, drinking the wine of the new covenant, inviting his family to eat and drink with him at his table until he comes to remember him. It is God's table, not the church's or the elders. And all my life, I listened to elders fencing the table saying, this is the table of Jesus Christ. It is not my table. If it's not your table, buddy, then why are you the one who tells people who can and can't eat from it? If it is your table, I get it. You know, you come to my house, I can kick you out. It ain't your house, and it isn't your table. It's just one of those tiny little things I've never understood, but, but I hear elders say it Sunday after Sunday, everywhere I ever hear it. Well, not, I can't say every time, but it, it certainly is a common thing you hear elders say. This is not a ritual needing correct performance by the right people to be a blessing. It is a regular practice and should be repeated in faith. It is an opportunity to reflect on our sin and our need for righteousness of Christ. So though everyone is encouraged to examine themselves, and by the way, there isn't any verse in the New Testament that calls upon an elder or anybody else to examine you to make sure that you are worthy of the faith. The two times in the New Testament, Paul says you need, it's Paul who says it, says you need to examine. Guess what? The first time is the drunks need to examine themselves to see if they're worthy to partake of communion. And the after that, he just exhorts the Corinthians generally, examine yourself to see whether you're, you know, in the faith. There's no call for, for examinations in the sense of testings. The church, though, invites, uh, so though everyone is encouraged to examine themselves, the end result is not to decide whether or not to partake. God's people partake. You decide not to partake. It's a profession of faithlessness. It's not a humility that I realize I have sinned this week, so I am not worthy of the table. But rather you're saying, Jesus Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient for my sin. And you go and you partake of and say, oh God, don't strike me dead. I am so sorry for my sin. You don't, you don't discipline yourself. The church invites those who are command, oh, 
So that everyone is encouraged to examine themselves, the end result is not to decide whether or not to partake, but rather to partake in faith of whatever blessing or judgment God has in store at his table for you, his child, and to say, that is what I deserve. I call upon your grace, O Lord. Not, I am so humble, O God, I will not defile your table, because I am, I am beating myself for my sins. Rather, you turn yourself over to God and say, God, whatever I need, lay it on me. I'm your child. The church invites those who are commanded by God to come to him, which is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and those unable on their own to come, he, he commands not to forbid them just because they, they're not able on their own to come, like the elderly, the infirm, the, the, the mentally incompetent, the children, but, but to bring them, to provide, they're especially the ones who need to be provided for, his littlest little ones. The lame, the halt, the blind, the mentally handicapped, the elderly, the children. The role of the elders in this whole process is most noticeable by the fact that there is none. Go read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Underline everything Paul tells elders to do. Underline everything that Paul says. You know, the reason you're having all these problems is you haven't gotten yourself good elders yet. Find it. Underline it. Share it with us. Yet, for some reason, First and Second Corinthians is the flagship book, books of the New Testament used to defend the authority of elders to control the practice especially of the communion service, and it's inevitably turned into a ritual by their seizure of power over it because it's a whole heck of a lot easier to control a ritual and to be the doorway to who gets into this ritual, like any good priest, than it is to have a meal in front of you and simply be one of the people coming to that meal somebody the people respect very highly, no doubt, in that sense a leader, but not somebody who's the doorway. Anything not a ritual is useless to a priest and those who claim priestly powers and who, or who function with priestly powers, whatever other name they may call themselves. Go check out 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34 and ask the questions that if you're disagreeing with me, you're just fine, you by all means disagree, Go check out 11, 17 through 34 and see if you can find the role of a priest in that process. Please don't tell me it's assumed. Go. Yeah, anyway, we'll move on. Throughout the evening or at any other time, the church gathers for fellowship. The issues of life are discussed privately and, where appropriate, corporately. There is singing and music, instruments for the gifted. People will listen to others say some hard things, sometimes personally, sometimes privately, other times corporately. So, and then they will work it out like iron sharpening iron, even needing to get everyone's attention so something serious can have the wisdom of all God's people and may even come to the point that they make the decision of how it's coming down here and you'd better go along with God's people. You'd better discern the body. Everyone is helping each other sort through all the issues of life learning maturity, handling sin, error, philosophical disputes, offense, righteousness, and blessings. Like mature adults, confident in the word and judgment of God, not like petulant children, insecure in all their ways, needing somebody in authority to sort it all out for them. It's real. 1 Corinthians 2-3, through 3, especially uh, 1 Corinthians 4-1-7, is real. Go read them. Then, as in any group, there are some who are really gifted at explaining things or praying for people or singing. And at some point, everyone listens to them and, and explains things to them or, or prays with them or sings or prays together. It might even be an argument that everyone listens to. We're going to have two people debate this thing, see how it comes out. It all takes about two to three hours, then they clean up. It's going to happen again, so there's no urgency in the entire service or in the agenda. You don't have to be done so people can get home to... Now, here's what I was getting at earlier when I talked about dividing over doctrine and stuff like that. As the group grows, it naturally divides and new groups start up. The presupposition of everything I'm saying is if the Holy Spirit is at work, <laughs> Anthony Canone says he's eating while I am. It's all my fault. Well, it's good to eat, but he says not trash fish. I know, shellfish. I apologize for any of you who are scandalized by my diet. As a group grows, it naturally divides, and a new group starts up. It would not be wrong to build a meeting house, but administration of the petty can consume God's people. It's not like having a building to take care of that all of a sudden gives people who God gives no power to in Scripture, suddenly they kind of got the church by, 
by the short hairs because they they do everything all the hard work to see to it they serve everybody by having a nice building for them to be in well without a warning no matter what the size of the meeting room or its amenities or the size of the building at some point by god's grace there must be division for new groups to begin or something terrible will have happened the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit will have been quenched, and this branch of God's people will have therefore stopped filling the earth and subduing it. They will have stopped discipling the nations, and this should drive people to their knees and to fall on their faces, humiliated at what can only be seen as some form of rank hypocrisy. Like when they went up to Ai and couldn't defeat it, the people come back and they're falling on their faces. Only 18, was it 18 people were killed in that battle? But it was like, no, this can't be. Why are we not growing to fill the land? How could AI hold out against us? The people, if the church is not growing and dividing, if the Holy Spirit is not moving powerfully among them, so when people come in, they say, surely God is among you. I don't, I don't get what you guys are doing. I don't even understand what you're saying, but I can see that this is the God I need. What do I do? And the, and the secrets of their heart are laid bare which is the way Paul described it, is when people come into, outsiders come in, even to where they're speaking in tongues and nobody can understand a word they're saying. That's how powerful the work of the Holy Spirit is. I don't know what you're saying, but buddy, uh, <laughs> that's what I want. I want to be cleansed. I want to be different. I want to be with you. I want to be with God. Now, sometimes the division is not happy or friendly, as it is where I just described, where they just got too many people in the room. Since it could, be, it could revolve around serious disagreements concerning morality, doctrine, philosophy, theology, or ministry. And all of those have things worthy of disagreeing. I mean, the fact is, we all do disagree about stuff like that. In, in this case, the division may be a painful one. Each side, it, it could be so bad that each side is convinced that the other side is in grievous mortal error. Or perhaps engaged in sin. But in Christ, there is that charity that God will heal the breach, convince the sinner, correct the errant, and it is our task to love and pray for them and, and not hate or resent them or fear that they will unsettle the faithful. Remember Ephesians 4, 13 through 16? Why, why do you have people who can be blown around by every wind of doctrine in your congregation? That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.13. He says that's why you have prophets and preachers and pastors and teachers. And it's, it's, it's to build up each person to the fullness of the faith so that they're no longer uh, 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 blown around, buffeted about by the winds of doctrine. If that were true, you wouldn't go, oh, no, we have a heretic. We can't let Fred hear him talk because you know Fred. No. It's like sick Fred on him. Why do you mean sick Fred on him? Because he's the least of our group. He's the least esteemed. The whole approach of God's people, of God's leaders, is not that they're the, the kings out doing battle in your place. They're the ones who, in Ephesians 4, 13 and 16, especially verse 14, in 2 Timothy 2, 19, in John 6, 37 through 40, they are the ones who are leading the people to be able to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth. So if necessary... Start a new fellowship that separates out the sides in the dispute. And wait for God's final judgment in a year or a hundred or even thousand years hence. <clears throat> Again, I just point to an experience I had. When we were in high school, our youth group um, was practically ripped to shreds by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And people were arguing about it. And, and one night, the youth group director, who happened to be my mom, so let's all talk about this. And everybody thought, oh, great. This is the last time anybody's going to talk to anybody. And so sure enough, we all got together. We argued. One person says, go ahead, Tommy. Speak in tongues for us. Let's see what it sounds like. And Tommy was saying things like, like you know what? Uh, actually, it was his conversion that, that made everybody take seriously what he was talking about. It was really cool what God did in that man's life. And I can testify to it 45 years later. But the point is, when we got towards the end of it, we had this agreement. You know what? We're not really sure the role of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and all of that and, and, and that, but we, we do know this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith. Let's come back. Let's just drop this for a year. And a year from now, we'll come back to see who the Holy Spirit has used to win more people to Christ, who the Holy Spirit has, has brought forth greater fruit, and at that time we'll judge who's right and who's wrong. 
that's kind of the pattern I'm looking at. God's word will winnow the chaff. 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 11. 2 Chronicles 12, 9 and 10. Go check them out. God's word is sufficient. The ministry of God's people gathering is that it's the sort of place where all may come and bring everyone they meet. They are, there they gather people who one day, one person, one experience at a time, change the world. They don't come to a lecture or a special leader. They come to the people of God who are changed and eat and talk and discover ways to make it better for others. They come to a congregation of whom God is in their midst. They understand service because they understand God's law and God's grace. Their leaders aren't spiritual bigwigs, SBWs, who need support. They are the best at meeting the needs by serving, by, by building up each member of the congregation, not best at running things and forcing everyone into a straight line and, oh, they're sent over there, send the pastor to talk to them, keeping them dumbed down so everyone thinks that this is the best it can be. The expectation is that division will be a normal aspect of life for the church as it grows to fill the earth. In fact, it's necessary if there isn't division, you ought to be on your face in repentance. This division to grow is why dividing for other reasons, like we disagree about something, or in the ultimate sense of division, it's when a single person clings to their sin and, 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 and leaves to start his own church to see if the church of that sin is going to prosper. If I could just put it in exaggerated form like that. And that's the reason why dividing for other reasons isn't harmful to the message, the truth, or the witness of the church, but rather it's seen as a positive witness to God's ability to winnow out his people and his truth. That's how powerful his spirit is. That's how powerful his word is, and that's how much our confidence ought to be. There is nothing to fear in prying loose the teeth of the elite idea that the church is only protected by strong leaders who know better than the rest of us and go out and fight on our behalf to protect us, us little helpless lambs. In its place is the confidence that if the leaders focus on building up the congregation, they will, that congregation will have all the tools they need to transform the earth. Well, I still have some food to finish this meal with, but God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.